Uh, dear friends, hello. I'm very happy to see you and uh, I'm very happy to see uh, our guest. His name is David Noor. Noor, that means light. And I think it's a very big honor to have a name, David Noor, a light. He's the owner of 11 book. And all these books, are, they have very interesting names. The books are Relationship Economics, Return on Impact, Co-Create, and Curve Bandits, and other books. So I'm very happy to see you, David. Thank you for coming to us. Good evening. Olga, it is, it is good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dear David, you came from Iran with only $100, and you become quite famous, not quite, but really famous in the United States. You managed to help a lot of people and a lot of organizations. This is amazing. This is amazing. My first question to you. You have a book which is called Curve Bandits, and you're saying that you can find these Curve Bandits and you can be a Curve Bander yourself. Who are these people. What is the magical meaning of this tricky word? I understand that you are a tricky guy from Iran and you're using tricky words which help other people. So tell me please, what is that? Shukhada, shukhada. <laughs> Very kind. So thank you for your kind comments. It's good to be with you. Olga, I've spent the last 20 years really being a student of business relationships. Uh, where you've lived in Dubai, where you are in, in, in Azerbaijan, and I live in, you know, grew up in Iran, the rest of the world builds relationships first from which we do business. And you and I learned that at a you know, very young age. Unfortunately, when I came to the States, or not just the U.S. alone, but also a lot of European countries, only if the business part works, will think about the relationship, right? So let me get the sale first. Let me get the project first. Let me get the initiative first. Let me get the work done first. And then I may ask you about your family or your friends or how you're doing and, and really get to know you on a personal level. So when I saw this conflict where particularly Americans, and I've grown up in this country, we go into environments where people don't look like us, sound like us, or come from our backgrounds, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between what we need and what they respond with and back and forth. So all of my work from relationship economics and co-create, you were kind enough to mention, to most recently co-curve benders, is about this idea of these relationships that come into our lives, that beyond helping us with a short-term performance executional result, oh God, they shaped the manager, the leader, the human being that we become. So think of a professor so many years ago or that first manager that took you under his or her wings and didn't just teach you about the business or the market or a product, but they taught you how to engage, how to influence, how to move people in an authentic way, how to help people in an authentic way. Those are the relationships I call curve benders. Believe it or not, they're all around us. You just have to be much more intentional about investing in those relationships. You know, it's clear enough. So this curve bender, can it be a mentor or it's some influential leader or it's somebody from your family? Who can be this curve bender? As I understand curve, it's like when you are from, uh, you know, from this very slow growth, you go to exponential growth. You go like a rocket. Of You're course, exactly right. we want to have this curve um, you know, curve people, curve bandits, how to find them? Sure. So great question. 
in my experience, uh, families certainly can do that. My focus is on business relationships. And what I'm, what I'm thinking about is it certainly could be a great boss. It could be a great coach. It could be a great mentor. Olga, the challenge is a lot of times those individuals are a very specific point in our life. Let's say a year or two while we're in that job or while we're in that city or in that point in time. And they specifically help us with our performance, with our execution, with our results. Nothing wrong with that. We need that. I'm talking about curve benders as another level, another uh, deeper, more meaningful. They demonstrate a long-term vested interest in our success. They do more than just help us sell more or, or finish that project or get that movie or that short-term result. As you said, not just like a slow truck ramp in our growth, but really that hockey stick, really that what I call non-linear growth in, in our personal and professional growth journey. So beyond helping us accomplish, they really shape and mold us into that leader, into that executive that we become. David, can you name one person in your life who is that curve bender for you? Sure. It's, and I wrote about it in the book. There is a gentleman named Alan Weiss. Alan is a, uh, is a long-term consultant. He is, he is a, a solo practitioner, so he works for himself and has been doing that for a long time. Olga, I came from consulting. I knew how to consult. And when I created my own practice, when my own business, I went to Alan has a, a week-long consulting college. And you could very easily say he was a coach or a mentor. And if I had stopped there, that's all he would have been. But I've stayed in touch with him. Over the years, I've learned. I've not just bought his books and interacted with him, but I've been involved in his community. And I've, I speak to him on a regular basis. And he's taught me that, for example, we don't have a work life and a personal life. You have one life. So the sooner you can not just think about work-life balance, but work-life blending, the happier you're going to be, the less stressed you're going to be, the more you're going to be able to help other people. So that's an example of Alan changed my lens, changed my perspective on what it meant to be a consultant, to be an advisor, to really help fewer people, but really create a deeper, more impactful, more meaningful difference in their lives. Uh, my next question to you is, okay, I understand what you're saying, but also in one of your books and in one of your interviews, you said that you should move these people to what you want. For example, for me, what is my problem? I have a lot of friends because in general, I love people, but I cannot ask them what I want. And we reached that extent that my daughter told me, mama, why don't you tell them what you want? You have thousands of friends. You have people who adore you. Why are you not saying that? So. I think there should be this step done. If we don't say what we want, how you will guess what I want? Should you, we talk about what we need? Absolutely. So I want your audience to really think about this reciprocal nature and value exchange in your relationships. One of the best things you can do is what I call go on a listening tour. So make a list of your most, of all the thousands of people, Olga, that you know, who are the 10? Who are the 20? Who are the 50 most valuable to you? 
and those that hopefully know you, hopefully like you and trust you. And I would simply go to them and ask, knowing me, what do you believe I do exceptionally well? Of all the things that I do, what do you believe I do? Not just okay, but exceptionally well. And listen to what they say. Because if these people, if they're real relationships, they're going to know you. They have some experience in having worked with you. And they will tell you their perception, their understanding of your biggest strengths. That's number one. Number two, you need to help your, your relationships want to help you. Most of them don't know how to help you. So we have to arm them with the ammunition of, and by the way, most people can't remember more than three things. Here are the top three things I want to do. Can you help me? Will you help me? And again, if you arm them with the ammunition of how to help you, most of our relationships want to help. They just don't know how to help. They don't know where to begin and where they can be most impactful to you. So one, go on a listening tour and really listen to what they believe to be your exceptional strengths. Two, tell them the three things you want and ask for your help. The second works only if you've invested, only if you have added value to their lives. That's that exchange of value that I talk about. That's fair enough. And I think that you, since you were brought up in the East, and Eastern people are so good in that. Even if you come to the markets, the way how they talk, how they smile, how they talk, it's not immediately like in the West, let's do business, let's invest. And if I will not do business, masalama, bye-bye. I'm not going to talk because it's a waste of time. I think nowadays it's not that primitive. We should go deeper, you know. And sometimes what I noticed, you think you will not work with this person. You forgot about him, but you just continue relationship because you care about them. And then after 10 years, whoop, and it becomes your business partner just because you took care about him, not about as a business partner, but as a human being. Olga, so it you're, might exactly, happen. you're exactly right. And one of the challenges with technology, you and I love technology. We use technology. One of the oh, challenges. Oh, no, David, David, I hate technology. For me, I hate technology. I'm bad in that. I love people. I wish if we can meet in person. But, you know, I am now in Kazakhstan. You are now in your... Are you now in USA? I am. I am in Atlanta. You're my, in Atlanta. My, my comment was around this, this social media has spoiled us in some ways to think that all of those contacts, all of those followers, all of those things are actually real relationships. And, Olga, they're not. What we learned in the East is you have to invest. You have to get to know the real person. You have to understand what they care about, what they need, and how you can help them. So I actually believe in fewer, fewer, but deeper, more authentic, more real relationships that you can count on. Because all of those LinkedIn connections or Twitter followers or YouTube subscribers mean nothing when you need help. When you need something and they're not available, they're not interested, or they can't help you. It so, goes without saying. We have the friends that you told. You can know can only know 100 people, but about this 110 people, but about this 10 people, 3 people. We have a question to you, David. You're very famous and very handsome, so women start asking questions to you. The first question to you. How to ask for help to find a job for my husband who has been without it for two and a half years? The question so, is from Susie. 
Mm-hmm. Susie, Susie, thank you for asking. Uh, let me give you three tips. One, work with your husband and capture, write down what are what are those skills? What are those capabilities? What does he do? What does he like doing that he's very good at? One. Two, we've got to focus. You, you can't just cast a big net to see who's available, who's interested. Focus on who's having problems that your husband can solve. The third step is we weren't, you and I are not in the ice cream business, but I've always learned if you give people a taste, if you give them a taste of the value that you can create, it's amazing what happens and how they will respond. Leave them wanting more. So if he can help in a small way and let that person that has the problem see what your husband is capable of, I think it will open the door for him to find opportunities. But you have to focus and you have to invest in a few relationships. Those that know him, hopefully like him, trust him to really get him started. And it can open up all kinds of doors and opportunities. Uh, thank you so much, David, for this question. I hope we helped Susie. Uh, she is my very good friend from Dubai. Now she left Dubai and I hope everything will be good. Nowadays, a lot of people really are looking for job, are looking for new businesses, are building their own, own brands. They want to go global because they're sitting in their flats in front of Zoom and they want to do something. For people who are like us, who like to talk, who like to be on the stage, it's a disaster. But we are doing and we are creating the ways. Uh, my last question to you is about um, people in the feedback when they were giving to your speeches, they were saying that you're amazing, incredible, magnificent. And the topic in business strategy visualization, if to say it in two, three words, uh, okay, we are not businesses. I'm not speaking as Mercedes or BMW or Louis Vuitton. If I have a small business or a middle business, how can I do this strategy visualization? So thank you for asking. The examples are over my shoulder, and these are really elaborate. This is a this is a service we offer for clients. But Olga, not everybody needs this. Not everybody should do it to this level. What I want you or, or your audience that might be small business owners to think about is really visual storytelling. Again, from the East, we learn how to tell stories at a very young age. And what I've learned is most people may never remember your points, but they will always remember your stories. So A, if you can capture your value, capture what you do and how you do it in a story, it is gonna be a lot more memorable, number one. Number two, you can start simple, but if you draw pictures, remember the old adage of, let me show you on back of a napkin? Yes, let me of course. You, this let napkin me is so popular, my God. Napkin in the Starbucks, all businesses grow from napkins. Okay. So, so, so build on that. Instead of sending somebody a PowerPoint or a document or this elaborate anything, there's a saying that says, if you confuse, you lose. And if you, if you make things complicated, they're not going to remember. And more importantly, they're not going to act. So keep um, it simple, simple yes. easy, fast. And if you can draw, if you can visually tell that story, it's much more likely to be remembered and repeated. Absolutely, absolutely. It's easy to say, difficult to do. But at the same time, I think that you, uh, you know you're quite successful in that. And uh, what you will recommend as uh, comments and um, as goodbye to people who are hidden hero? Uh, beyond every hidden hero has an educational foundation 
and there's some skills, competencies, capabilities that they're very good at, your biggest asset is your portfolio of relationships. If you nurture it, if you sustain it, it will pay dividends for years to come. This is amazing, David. And I know why you are Noor, why you are light, because you give this light with this Iranian background and American smile. It's amazing combination. Thank you Thank so you. much for being with us, for sharing your knowledge. And I wish you good luck in Atlanta. I wish you business to grow and you continue to smile like you did today with us. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. How to say goodbye? Dear friends, good evening. Uh, I'm very happy to see you and I'm very happy to see Dr. Nadia Jeksimbaeva. She's a very, very famous person from Kazakhstan, a star of Kazakhstan, but she's now also very famous in USA as well and in many countries because this beautiful doctor is the chief reinvention officer with the book, How to Thrive in the House. She was four times in TEDx talks and uh, she's helping people how to reinvent themselves. My dear Nadia, tell me please, you are the scientist, you are the author mm -hmm. and you are a very feminine girl, lady. How to reinvent ourselves in the time of pandemia where there is a lot of house, a lot of fear to do vaccination, not to do vaccination, shall we die or shall we live? How to survive for our businesses, but even how to survive for ourselves, how to teach our kids. So we have so many fears, I cannot list them because uh, already it's 15 or 20 or 25. And you are talked about that a lot. What is your recipe for us, please? Well, there are many different approaches and different levels. So I'll start from the easy one because I don't want to overwhelm you. And then we will go from there. The most important thing when we are in a panic and crisis is to remember the biology and to recognize what is happening to our body in the moment of crisis, in the moment of panic. And especially when it is a prolonged period of stress. And with the pandemic, we've been in this state for a about a year and a half now. This is a very long-term, in fact, we need to be very mindful of that too. So first and foremost, fear is a very underappreciated emotion. It's a beautiful emotion and it's a very necessary emotion. If we didn't have fear, we will all be dead. So be thankful to your fear, stop fighting your fear and start using your fear. Fear is here to focus you. So when you are in stress, when you're in fear, what's happening with your body is your kidneys are releasing uh, hormone, adrenaline, and a few others that are there to concentrate your attention and to make sure you have a rush of energy. That's why your heart is pumping. That's why you feel this rush of energy in your muscles because your body is preparing for you to either kill your enemy or to run away from your enemy. So your body created all this energy. Don't waste it use it and we have a very simple exercise we give to everyone it's a three-step exercise number one list all of your fears just what exactly are you afraid of what kind of consequences number two sort them in three buckets what do i control what can i influence even if i cannot control fully and number three what is outside of my control and that will allow you to start using your fear and move to the third step, which is the action plan. Concentrate only on things you control and influence. Ignore things you don't control because it's a waste of time. You will be surprised how easy it is for you to do this exercise at home 
with your team and the company and how simply um, and quickly you will see a transition from a stress into a sense of possibility. So you mean all this energy that we have and we cannot stop this energy, it's huge. We, cannot. we can we cannot uh, neglect it, but we can use it for something positive. It's like volcano, volcano of energy that we can do for some actions. Is Absolutely. it something like that? Absolutely. You cannot control your fear. Your fear is incontrollably uh, faster than your rational thought, at least 500 times faster. And I always give you this example. All of you guys, girls, everyone who is drivers, remember the last time you were sitting in a passenger chair when the driver was doing something crazy? You are in the passenger seat. You know you don't control anything, but your right foot is pushing the imaginary brakes. Your body, you're a smart person. You know there is no break. You know there's nothing to push, but your body is pushing them anyway because your emotions are much stronger and much faster than your rational thought. So use this energy. Stop fighting this energy. Stop being ashamed of this energy or stop pretending that you are not afraid. If you're not afraid, you are not in all uh, scientific terms, healthy. If you're not afraid, you are not healthy. If you are afraid, congratulations, you are normal, you're healthy. Now stop ignoring this energy and start using it for yourself, for your family, and for your company. Wonderful, very interesting, very easy to say, but very difficult to do because I know it's not that easy. It's easy for you because you meditate, mm -hmm. you're a scientist, and you did a mm -hmm. lot of research and you help. Uh, I'm not bossy, I'm the boss. This is, you know, Nadia's <laughs> logo, and this is how she sees the life. She's the boss. You made uh, something like uh, you invented the word a few years ago, which is called Titanic Syndrome. What is this yes. Titanic Syndrome? What are you talking about, Nadia? Uh, well, as you say, I was a Coca-Cola chair professor for a long time, and then I started my own company because one of my students dared me. I had an executive education student. He was a CEO of a major company, and he said, well, you speak so well, I almost believe you, but I've never seen in your CV an actual work experience. You've never been inside business. Now come work with business, then I will listen to you. And he was my first client. And once I started working with companies in crisis, that's my specialty, I realized that there is a pattern of behavior uh, that is very, very normal or repetitive in the companies that are dying and also for the individuals who have experienced a career decline or experienced a serious disruption in their personal and professional life. And that is a particular pattern of thinking and behavior. And I was looking for a metaphor to describe that pattern. And I saw a beautiful presentation by a wonderful professor in Spain, Juan Serrano, who was comparing Titanic with the business experience. And I was like, that's exactly what it is. We're suffering from Titanic syndrome, which is extreme attachment to past success, arrogance, when you believe that your company or your career is untouchable, unsinkable, too big to fail, too good to fail, or inability to notice a threat, in the case of Titanic, that was an iceberg, and adapt to it on time. So Titanic syndrome is a corporate and individual disease in which we bring about our own death. We kill ourselves because of our own arrogance, our own inability to let go of past success, and our own inability to notice and adapt to new reality.
and I see it widely present in business worldwide. I live in the States. As you said, I was born in the Soviet Union. I'm from Kazakhstan and I see it irregardlessly. It's not connected to geography. It's not connected to any one place. It's universal. Uh, you become, Nadia, very popular in USA. Being from Kazakhstan, unfortunately, yeah. there are not that many examples of people from Kazakhstan who are successful in the world. Of course, we have Timur Bekmabekov. We can name a few names that are. What is, um, what is the reason of your success? What do you think? What, what is the star, lucky star that yeah. makes you happy? Who is moving? People. People. I've been blessed at every step of my life. I had somebody who was sometimes kicking and screaming and dragging me to the next stage. And I was sitting there myself infected with Titanic syndrome, thinking that I know everything and I don't need anybody's help and I'm too good for something. I remember when I was in a, in a graduate school, in, in a um, undergraduate still, finishing up my college, my professor said, you have to go to do your PhD. And I said, no, I want to go to the city. All my friends at that point were already working in New York City. I wanted to work on Wall Street. And my professors were like, no, you will not be happy there. You are the kind of person who needs to go do science. And they actually fundraised money for me and crowdfunded my ticket to Cleveland to get the uh, interview for the doctorate. And I can name you another 50 people in different points of my life that literally changed my life. So um, my lucky star has definitely been an amazing community of people. And I hope I can pay it forward for some youngsters who are working with me now. That is wonderful. That is a very interesting answer, Nadia. And uh, uh, I like that you appreciate people. It's not very usual and it's very um, humble. Uh, it's the truth. It's the truth. I, I actually went back to my college. I was invited as a graduate speaker and I spoke about every professor who changed my life because the truth is uh, we are not ever independent. We are interdependent. We don't need to be dependent, but we are always interdependent. So my life is a combination of thousands and thousands of lives that cared enough to push me somewhere. And I'm very, very thankful. Uh, you made one word, you are the, the inventor of the words, the inventor of the logos, the inventor of the terms, because you are a scientist. And I I'm a scientist, yeah, you that's are, my job. That is your job. What is this embedded sustainability? In 2009, mm. you invent, invented this mm -hmm. word. What is that? Yeah, uh, this was uh, one of the, my area of research. What do I study? I study survival. I study why do some companies die and others survive, why some countries grow and others disappear, why some careers soar and others um, seem to be okay and then start going in a decline. So I study survival. This is my professional expertise. And when I looked at the research on the global survival, speaking about our global family as a civilization, I saw the term sustainability being used a lot, but it's a kind of blah term if you think about it. I'll give you an example. Imagine this Friday after the COVID, and I don't know um, wherever you are right now, is it possible, is it allowed to go to dinner here in the US? We are opening up and we can't go to the restaurants now. So imagine that you go to a restaurant this Friday and after the restaurant, you come out and you accidentally bump into a neighbor of yours. 
you haven't seen each other for a year and a half because of COVID restrictions, and you're so excited because you haven't, you know, you used to do barbecues together and you know each other. And you ask this person, so how are you? How's your life? How's your marriage? Sustainable. That term is just, if you imagine that kind of answer, that term is not exciting. I don't no. want my marriage to be sustainable, no. right? I don't want my company. It's like sustainable. This is not looking good. This is not sounding good. But for some reason in business and in politics, we decided that sustainability is the highest of the high. This is our, this is our visionary term. Sustainable is not good enough. I don't want my marriage to be just sustainable. I want it to be amazing. I don't want my company to be just sustainable. I want it to be flourishing and thriving and through the roof and everything you can imagine. So we wanted that term to become the norm. And we created a framework that is now used by millions of companies around the world. And if you Google sustainable, embed embedded sustainability specifically, you will see millions and millions of millions. Uh, uh, I heard the word embedded sustainability in Dubai. Maybe some company came from USA. We so, invested. so you invented it. Yeah. Yes. So the concept is that instead of uh, doing sustainability as a bolt on a bandaid PR sidekick, embedded in everything you do, into the DNA of your company, in your strategy, in your product development, in your operations. And when you do that, you actually create an incredible competitive advantage for yourself. So stop thinking of it as this visionary idea, but instead integrate it in everything to, you do. Instead of just doing your company's activities as you do now, and then have a philanthropic fund that donates to dolphins or monkeys or whatever else actually embed sustainability at every stage and you will be surprised one how normal it will become and you will finally start thinking beyond just sustainable and two how financially rewarding it is for yourself and for your clients your suppliers your partners and so on you know, I like, Nadia, what you're saying, because you recommend us not to move when something happened, but to do it three steps before and even 10 Absolutely. steps before. Think about Absolutely. that before. Don't wait when disaster will happen, but be ready, be prepared, be mm -hmm. sustainable before and fund these dolphins, as you say, and birds and ecology before it's too late, before we are all dying and suffocating. Better Let to me be explain why. Let me explain why. Uh, there are two pieces of science for you. Number one, when you start reinventing on the decline, so you wait until your company is in decline, your career is in decline, your city is in a decline. If you start reinventing on the decline, science shows that your chances of going back to your historic maximum are only 10%. That's it. If you start reinventing when things are already going down, it's pretty much a guarantee you are done. You will never come back. So number one, you have to reinvent on the up part of this cycle when you're still moving upwards. And that is preventative in nature. Essentially, you need to break your own life, your own business, your own company before it's broken. And that takes a lot of guts. And the second piece of research, this is studies we do ourselves at Reinvention Academy, and we do it every two years, is knowing when is the right time. And our research suggests that today, if you want to survive in business, you need to reinvent your company every three years or less. Every three years or less. And you have to do it before 
it hits you, before your competitor kills you, before COVID kills you, before regulation kills you, before uh, your employees say, bye-bye, we don't want to work in real office setting anymore and we all want to be real freelancers. You have to be ahead of the curve. And for that, just doing occasional reinvention is no longer good enough. It needs to be your mindset. It needs to be your tool set. It needs to be your skill set. You have to turn this into part of your daily life and to a habit that is as natural as taking a shower. Nadia, I want to thank you very much because it is very precious information. Thank you for being with us. And I want people who want to know Nadia more and her way of thinking, join this Reinvention Academy, see the seminars, the masterclasses. Nadia gives a lot of positive energy and a lot of dreams coming true. Thank you for being with us. It was really big.